Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. She shall not be moved. That is what we're resting our hope in, isn't it, church? That we're not going to be moved, that the gates of hell will not be, be prevailing against the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that we are His people and that He will save us. It could be easy to get lost in the book of Revelation. It could be. If you consider that over 90% of its contents are rooted in the Old Testament and in the prophecies of the Bible and that you are to plug and play as you read it, uh, to get the meanings of these things, you can get lost. It's really tempting to go to Google. And just Google some things about Revelation, every little question you have. But I promise you this, you will be more confused if you do that than ever before. You'll be more afraid to open up the book than ever before. And so what I want to do just by preaching the book is really give you, give me, giving you an overview of the book and of its major theme and its major messages. And I hope that you'll actually pick it up and continue to further study it in all of its various tenets and come to know it more. I mean, ideally, it'd be uh, good to do a class on the book of Revelation, take our time with it, ask all the questions, but I hope it'll spark an inquiry in you because, as you know, this book is written to seven churches in Asia, but it's written to you and I, isn't it? I mean, man, is it applicable to today? Just the faces have changed. The names of the nations have changed. We live in a, a new nation since that time and, and all of these things, but human nature has not changed. Temptation and the forms of temptation have not changed. Uh, the fears that we have have not changed. And so we can take all of these things written to our brethren in the churches of Asia and apply them to ourselves. It's easy to put the book on a shelf in the, in the library of our mind, maybe next to the Song of Solomon, right? Or next to Zechariah, which is also another highly symbolic book, Ezekiel. And just say, I don't know if I'll ever understand those. I'll leave those to those who study those things to tell me what they mean. But I'll tell you, you're going to miss a lot of power. And if you are someone who needs courage, and you need strength, and you need hope, Revelation can be and should be one of the first books you turn to to get it. I'm only going to read one full chapter this morning, and I'm going to encourage you to follow along through the rest like we've been doing. But chapter 12 is a good example of a chapter that's very symbolic, uh, apocalyptic language, but it's not rocket science. You can get the main figures out of this chapter and figure out most of the things, and you'll get the, the idea that God wants you to come away with. You're going to win if you hang in there. You're going to win. Uh, we already have victory, church. Jesus Christ has already overcome death. And you and I have joined ourselves together with Him. We've been buried with Him in the likeness of His death through baptism into Jesus Christ by the Spirit into one body that He's going to save. We're more than conquerors now. And as we sang that song, what beautiful words they were in this last song uh, Rodney chose, I think it was the last one we just sung, uh, Will Your Anchor Hold? 
He said that the, the angry wave will not break over the bark or come into the boat. Well, it won't in the sense that someone is going to cause you to be separated from God eternally. But as we'll see here, angry waves may come into your boat. You may need to bail a lot of water to get through, but you're not going to drown in this sense. You may even lose your life for the sake of Christ, but you're not going to drown in this sense. That God somehow doesn't have the power to recognize who you are, to claim you as his own, and to bring you home when Jesus Christ returns. That's where our real hope lies. Do you understand that this promise is not for you to have a better life? For you to be happy? This promise is to say, whatever happens down there, I've got an ultimate purpose. There's a reason why things are playing out the way they are. And if you're living in this world, you hold on tight to me and I'll get you through and you're going to win. Nobody can separate you from the love of Christ. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That being said now, let's read why these early Christians were giving life and death testimonies of Jesus Christ our Lord. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Let's do a little bit of reading together. These are short chapters. That's one good thing about the book when you're trying to figure some things out. Uh, the scenes change fairly quickly, so you're not into six or eight chapters of one thing. Here's where we are, by the way, before we start reading. I, I forgot to tell you, I put this up here. We've gone through, after the... Letters of the seven churches were read. The throne room scene is described. The lamb takes the scroll from the father's hand and he's going to read the revelations that make up the revelation. And we've read through the six seals. We actually are still in the seventh seal. We have looked at the trumpet sounds, which are part of that seventh seal being broken and revealed. We're reading through these trumpets and now we're looking at an interlude with some signs and visions before we get into the seven bowls of wrath or the seven judgment. So we're kind of in an interlude here. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, John wrote. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child... She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great, uh, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. 
nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now without delving in very deeply, who would be the child that was born? The male child who was caught up to God, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's our Lord, isn't it? We know that from prophecy. We know that from reading about him in the New Testament. We know that he was resurrected from the dead and is at the right hand of God, ruling all nations. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who gave birth to the woman? Who was it that had a garland of 12 stars that might have been the ones who were expected to give birth to the male child, but the nation of Israel, right? The 12 stars on the woman's head. And so we know that the child came from the promises made to Abraham and his children that one would be born of Abraham's seed who would bless all nations and who would save them from their sins? Now, who is the dragon? This isn't hard, is it? Look at verse, what is it, verse 7? Uh, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. If we just stopped there, you'd go back to the garden, wouldn't you? Oh, I know who that is. That serpent of old, but John says, I'll tell you who it is. It's the devil and Satan. It's our adversary and our accuser. That's what those two words mean. Devil means your adversary, the one who's against you. Satan means the one who accuses you. And as we see here, he stands before our God and accuses the brethren day and night. He's making his case. And he's got a case. He's got a case against those Christians. And he's got a case against you and me. Because he can find sin in Matt Thomas's life. And he can stand before God and accuse God of that. And God could punish me for those sins and cause me to be separated eternally from him. But that's not the end of the story, is it? The child was caught up to God. The woman whom he now waged war against had a place in the wilderness. The wilderness is not a friendly place. This is not a wilderness paradise being described. It's a place she fled to 
to try to get away from the persecution. And the devil went after her. And he tried to sweep her all up with an overwhelming flood of evil and of persecution. But the earth helped. It was God's providence behind this that he preserved her wherever she went. And he nourished her while she was in the wilderness during this time of persecution. You see, this isn't that hard to figure out. We can, just from what we know a little bit about the gospel or about some of the major prophecies in the Bible, realize what's going on in this chapter. Now, there are some things that are a little different. The time, times, and half a time, or the 1,260 days. But you know, there's uh, mentioned numerous places about that period of time. The, it's the period of, of time of the beast's authority in chapter 13, verse 5, described as 42 months. It's all the same. 42 months is 1,260 Jewish days. Time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. And so this is all referring to a period of time. We see it mentioned there. We see it being the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, uh, being a time, times, and half a time that this little horn he prophesied about would be a thorn in God's people's flesh. And in chapter 11, verse 2, it's 42 months, etc. So this is a period of time. Now, if you tried to, to say that it lasted for exactly 1,260 days, you'd be hard-pressed to, to be able to find if those were the exact times and dates. But more so, commentators believe that this is more um, emphasizing uh, the events that take place and the fact that it's an indefinite period of time and it's a time of intensity. It can be defined. It's recognizable what took place here. And so like the other periods of time, it's talking about a state of affairs rather than trying to calculate exact dates and times. The period is limited, but listen to this. It's the period of time that the holy city is trampled underfoot, but the temple in it is preserved, chapter 10. It's the period of time that the two witnesses of chapter 11 are wearing sackcloth and prophesying of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are killed but then they're resurrected. It's the period of time that the woman must flee into the wilderness and there be sustained by God, but she is caught up and preserved ultimately by God. And it's the time now that the beast we see will persecute her, but God will preserve her. Though the church be victimized, she'll be victorious. That comes out in chapter 12 alone, doesn't it? Just alone. A heavenly war is depicted between the God-fearing angel Michael and his angels and the God-hating dragon who went up, presumably, after the child who was taken up to God to make war. But he's cast out of heaven into the earth. Enraged and defeated, he goes to make war against the offspring of the woman. That would be the church. All those who are of, of promise, of Abraham, who are now the Israel of God, who are now circumcised with the circumcision of the heart to God. Church, that's us. But in this time, he's going to go after that church. And it's also the fulfillment of the prophecy from Genesis 3.15, where from early on in the garden, God told that serpent of old that the seed of of woman is going to crush your head. 
You'll bruise her heel, but he will crush your head. And that is exactly what's going on here. The church is being attacked. It's being brutalized, but it's going to live because of the one who's going to be born, whom is specified in Genesis 12 as being a blessing to all the earth, who will come from the children of Abraham, who is specified by over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament to be Jesus Christ. And when he went to the cross, the devil thought he had him taken care of. The enemies of God thought that they had defeated this movement from this blasphemous one called Jesus, and then he raised up from the dead. God Almighty raised him up from the dead, and he said, I will raise you up to God, just like he was taken up to God, if you follow me. And we'll see in chapter 14, a vision of those who are with him, whom it says, about whom it says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They went with him in their lives into work and service through the church. They went with him in this picture to their death, just as he did upon the cross. They went to their deaths and he's saying, they're going to go with me right up to the throne room. And they're going to be singing a new song when they get up there. The song of Moses and the Lamb, victorious those of old and victorious those in the Christian age all singing together, worshiping our God and the Lamb. I don't know about you, but before going any further, I'm thinking to myself, I want to be on the side of this child. I want to be on the side of this Lamb. But let's go a little bit further and talk about now back on the ranch in chapter 13, how this enraged dragon is going to call upon two henchmen to do his dirty work. He's going to make war with the saints. And he's going to call upon men who agree with him in the basic tenets of unbelief and anger against God and pleasure in this world that they're pursuing. He's going to call upon those who are in agreement with him. And they are called a sea beast and an earth beast. So you're going to have a dragon who we know who that is now, Satan, calling upon a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. John's taken to the beach, but his day at the beach is spoiled when he sees something like probably you would picture, and I did, one of the old Godzilla movies where Godzilla's coming up out of, the, out of the sea and he's just about to go into Tokyo and start wreaking havoc. It's something like that. And so he sees this vision of this beast coming up out of the sea, and the sea represents out of many peoples. It does throughout the book and throughout the Bible. He's coming up of all the peoples of the earth. This beast rises up from them, and he is fearful. He is frightful. He has seven heads. He has ten horns and ten crowns on his ten horns here. And the dragon gave him his power. Gave him his throne and gave him his authority. Now let's just pause for a second. I thought God was the one who ordained the authorities in this world. Yes, he did to do good. And when an authority does evil, they're not ordained of God. He might call upon evil men to judge sin in this life, but it is not 
God's will that evil men rule the world because he in turn then will punish those evil leaders and those evil nations and, and judge them as well. Satan is the one who's giving the impetus to this beast and giving him his power and authority. All except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life worship the sea beast. Think about this with me for a second. Now we're not just talking about the city of Rome and Roman citizens there. All from all nations, tribes, tongues, they all are worshiping the beast. Almighty oh, Rome. Oh, how she brings luxury to our lives through her wealth and her riches. Oh, how I love how our nations trade and do commerce with her. Oh, how I love her systems of religion, which let me do about anything I want. As long as I acknowledge Caesar, how I love this empire, even though she has an iron fist clenched around my throat, the nations loved her and the nations mourned, you'll see in a couple chapters, when she fell. Why? Because their economies fell with her. Why? Because their freedoms that they had uh, been given by Roman citizenry had fallen with her. And they were experiencing these judgments too. But now they're worshiping the beasts. Partly because they loved her. And in some ways because they had to. But they benefited from it. The beast spoke blasphemies against God and his people. You know what I found out this week? I'm kind of ashamed I didn't know this. You would think. But the two major persecuting entities of Christians from the first century to now have been government institutions carrying out executions in the name of, of the governing bodies, in the name of state, and atheists, those who do not believe in God, who hate God, who think that religion is the problem, that's the second major category that's taken the lives of millions of Christians. Almost, probably now, I'm sure it is now over, 70 million Christians have been persecuted. Now, I'm going to share with you some eye-opening statistics next week as I've been researching this. Eye-openers. But when this beast blasphemes the name of God, it's because he doesn't have any room for this God of heaven. And he wants to snuff this thing out. Now, if you got your eyes awake in the United States of America, you realize that you might feel a little more uncomfortable being a Christian as time goes on. And you might realize that there are powers that would like to eradicate at least some of the things that we believe, some of the powers that we hold and influences that we hold, and completely do away with them. If you got your eyes open, you see that. I don't think that's my opinion. That just that happens, and it seems to intensify over time in nations, in any nation. Okay, so we have this beast. Let me see if I am behind on times here. I definitely am there. All right, uh, where's my chart? There it is. I want to show you this. I brought up Daniel 7 a few weeks ago as being a major prophecy uh, to point out that, that Rome is the fourth kingdom in Daniel that is being zeroed in on 
to give warnings. And Daniel is told, seal up these prophecies for, for another time. And he tells to John, here, write these things down. Don't seal them up because they're about to happen. But look at the uncanny similarities between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, would you? Now, there's four beasts which represent four kingdoms in, in Daniel 7. The lion uh, which was, was Babylon. The, the bear would have been uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. The leopard would have been the Greeks. And the, the uh, ten horns and little horn and that fourth kingdom would have been this beast of the Roman Empire. Over in Revelation, the Roman Empire bears the qualities or embodies the qualities of all of those beasts wrapped into one. So this beast looks like a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And for those who had studied the book of Daniel, God's people, they're saying, uh-oh, we have a monster on our hands. And he's going to be really having some power to do something about our faith. And the ten horns and the little horn describe not just the power, but actually get into describing the various Caesars. And if you're living at the time that the book is being written and you're reading it, you can tell what it means that the first seven horns uh, had some power and then they fade away and there's one that now is and there will be some who do this. And you're saying, just like we could say, we go through the presidents of the United States and we could say, okay, I can tell you who that probably is and that one is. They could read who those were. I'm not going to get into all that from the pulpit, but you can find good material on it. He spoke like a, a dragon pompous things in Daniel, spoke like a dragon, Satan, and in Revelation. Made war with the saints was the prophecy of Daniel. Here he is making war with the saints. He prevailed against them, Daniel said. And here he's prevailing against them. They go into the wilderness. They're in hiding. They're fleeing. They are dying by the thousands. They are they're running for the wilderness. He spoke words against God specifically, the God of heaven. And here in, in Revelation, we see him doing that. And it's going to be for a period of time, times and half a time. And in Revelation, we have that spelled out. There's no real question that this beast then is the Roman Empire, the imperial state of Rome, and all the power and authority that is given to it by Satan. And so, the sea beast is uncovered. Let me find my place now. The earth beast that is described, that was, that was verses, this is chapter 13, please follow along. That was chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, and now we're looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter. And these three bad characters are going to be uh, spoken of in nearly every chapter from here to the end of the book. All right, I'm really going to have to uh, spin the tires here now. This earth beast is very likely, I settle here at least, there's a few different ideas, all of which carry some weight, but I believe it's what's called the imperial, imperial cult or the Roman concilia. The body of religious leaders who enforce 
the worship of Caesar. And in so doing, they carry the authority to give, as part of Roman citizenry, a seal, literally an identification, that you have the right to buy and to sell and do commerce in this empire. Guess what that means for Christians? If you do not acknowledge that Caesar is God, you do not have the right to partake in the economy of this, this empire. Uh-oh. Not only that, but if we find out who you are, we have the right to persecute you, to prosecute you, and to persecute you. We have the right to do that. Christians have to, they have to band together. And they have to go undercover. And it's at times like this where they come up with things like fish symbols. Fish symbols. Ichthus, Jesus, Christos, Theos, Huias, Soterios, Jesus Christ, God's Son of Salvation. And we're going to use that fish to point the direction to our meetings. And we'll know what it means, but hopefully the Romans won't know what it means. And that is why you see fish in our culture all around on things. People think they're cute and they do cute things with them, but there's a much weightier meaning behind this thing. They're going into hiding. Some say it could be the apostate church, the movement of the church compromising with the governing bodies, compromising with the doctrines of Christ and becoming the Roman church or the Roman Catholic church. Well, there are certainly ways that it fits, but you have to go all of a sudden beyond the context of the first century, seven churches of Asia, to start pulling down all that stuff and making it fit. But, but it fits pretty well with some of the, the characteristics here as far as that goes, as far as a large deception, a large persecution that takes place, and a large departure. But I think this is talking hand in hand with Rome, Rome's concilia that is enforcing Caesar's will upon Christians. Now, there's one more thing I want to tackle, and then we'll wrap it up, which means I got through two pages of my four, but that's okay, because I can summarize the next couple chapters really easily, and I may do so next week. But here's my next question. So we got the sea beast, the earth beast. What's that number? Don't you all wonder about that? You ever been behind somebody at a cash register? And the bill comes out to $6.66 or $60.66 or anything close to it, and they freak out. I have. I witnessed that once. I'm going to give you $7. Well, I can't do anything. Put it in your pocket. I'm giving you $7. Well, I don't have a way to reconcile that at the end of the day. Just, just here, just throw it on the catch. I ain't paying $6.66. And I'm like, wow. And, and major buildings, office com complexes, and hotels will skip over 666, right? The room number and, and all kinds of things, just like they do with number 13. People freak out about 666. We have no reason to be superstitious, church. At the end of chapter 13, it says that he, that is this enforcer of the emperor's will, the earth beast, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. That's figurative, but it's also a very literal thing where they had identification to be able to do the commerce. 
and that no one may buy or sell. Do you see that? Except those uh, the one uh, who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is 666. And so people get out their calculators and they start going crazy. And you can come up with wild things. You can come up with Nero's name when you look at it in the Greek and you take it every letter as which letter in the alphabet is this and you start adding it up and it's like, it's Nero, it's Nero. You can do all kinds of fanciful things, man, with numbers in the Bible. I'm telling you, it's kind of weird. It, makes you, it does make you stop and think. But you, you'd have to, again, disengage from the context of what these real people in the first century needed to hear at the time. They didn't want to do math. They were already engaged in the study of Scripture. They don't need to do math because this is emphatically saying that if you fall into the snare of the dragon because you love this world more than its maker, you come up short. And if you're tempted to pet the sea beast by acknowledging Caesar is God, either to get your paperwork for buying and selling or to save your skin by denying the name of Jesus Christ, you're going to come up short. And if you're persuaded by the earth beast to worship anything other than the gods of Rome or any of the gods of Rome or the pagan world, you've declared war against the God of heaven and you're going to come up short. If you, if you lay hold of the dragon, if you lay hold of the sea beast and you lay hold of the earth beast, you're going to be defeated. Every one of them is a six in a book full of sevens. God's seven spirits, God's seven angels, God's seven judgments, God's seven revelations, the seals that are broken, His seven trumpets, His seven bowls of wrath. Are you getting the picture? God is completely holy, holy, holy. He is completely in power. He is completely going to conquer. And He's giving it to you 38 times in the book of Revelation by the number seven. And he says, the number of this group of three is six, six, six. Keep a hold of your faith and say the name of Jesus Christ because he will know those who are his. And though the whole world, church, this is the big lesson for today for me personally and for you, though the whole world worship the dragon, The ones whose names, chapter 13, verse 8, who are written in the book of life, don't do it. They don't wear the number 666. We got the number 7. And it's a good number. We're going to win because of that. And so he's saying, you may have to flee. You may have to hide. You may have to do something, but never deny. Never compromise. You stand firm. And we're going to win. I want to share with you this, uh, some conclusive remarks. What will you choose? What will you choose? The lamb or a life of ease, which he put forth to some of the churches in Revelation. Will you choose to be sealed with a seven or with a 666?
That's the only reason you should fear that number, is if you're wearing it. Will you choose the book of life to inscribe your name, or will you receive the bowls of wrath, which we'll touch on next week? You can read on this. Will you choose victory or defeat? It's really that simple what he's laying out here, and I want to tell you to choose the lamb. From every angle I can read, see, and understand, I want to be on his side, and I love you all, and I want you to be on his side. And we got to help each other, and we got to band together. we got to call each other out, and we got to uphold each other. Because this is life and death stuff. It really is. It's life and death. And we love each other, and we love God, and we got to hold on, and we can do it. So if you need to be one with the Lamb, you can be baptized into his name, for the remission of your sins, by emulating his death, burial, and resurrection by your own death, burial, and resurrection in water, and you become a child of God, and your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life today, sealed with the number seven. How good is that? Don't leave today without doing that. Let's stand and sing.